0: Welcome to 99 Talks, your go-to breakdown of the debates determining our future. Brought to you by three Melbourne students, Jaden, Whitney and Ariel, we seek to start discussions with young millennials and Generation Z about our place in the world as it rapidly changes.
1: We would like to open this podcast by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people, traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording this episode, as well as traditional custodians of the land throughout Australia that you may be listening on. We pay our respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening.
2: Hello and welcome to another episode of 99 Talks. Look, I'm going straight into it. Can you hear the excitement in my voice? We have a microphone.
1: This is incredible. I can't believe we finally got here after all these weeks on using AirPods and Apple earphones. And it was just an absolute mess. So we've, we've done it.
2: We're so excited. It's also our 10th episode and another milestone. It's our first time recording in person because we were using our phones.
1: Yeah. It's very
2: weird because I can see everyone's reaction to what I'm saying. The pressure's really on,
1: (laughs) even though it's just Whitney and Ariel, but I'm very excited to be doing this in person. It's great.
2: So much eye contact. It's all weird. (laughs) It is. It's like... Not, not used to it. <laughs> we even
1: managed to socialize beforehand, so it's really nice. <laughs>
2: <laughs> We've actually spent almost two hours just playing with the um, microphone and chatting. So, um, not the most efficient, but you can tell that we're excited. So yeah, here's to the 10th episode, our first time recording in person and a microphone. How exciting. <laughs> All right.
1: So we're recording here on the 16th of December. We're just at the beginning of summer. We've had a few really warm days here in Melbourne. I know today was quite nice and sunny and warm. And I don't know about you two, but I'm getting minor flashbacks to last summer where we had some really warm weather. And unfortunately, over the Christmas, New Year's, early January period, there were some severe bushfires around in the summer. It was called the Black Summer, given the amount of bushfires that Australia did have. And it just sort of reminds me of like the discussion about climate change that we had, you know, up and around those bushfires. And I know that a lot of politicians, they always said now was not the time to discuss climate change. And I mean, we're a year on from the bushfires. We're looking like we're having a wetter than average summer this year. So hopefully no bushfires. So I feel like now we can talk about climate change.
2: And also the time to discuss climate change was about 20 years ago, to be frank. Like we've had so much devastation since. Um, I just really find there's there's no point putting it off. I definitely feel like last bushfire season was some pretty significant trauma for all um, Australians, particularly those of us on the, in the eastern states. I know I was away with Whitney's family camping um, up north of Victoria. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we were
0: in Bright and we had to be evacuated by the end because yeah. it was just safer to get out than it was to stay there, which is crazy and, like... This started in October, didn't it? Those fires, it was was really early on and they burnt for months afterwards.
1: Yeah, they started really early. Essentially the bushfires last summer, they started up in Queensland and they just slowly worked their way down and they finished in Victoria and it was absolutely devastating.
0: And they banded together as well, which made it extra devastating Terrifying because it just would encapsulate people, which is so scary.
1: I don't think I could count on two hands how many Snapchat stories I saw of just like oh. red skies, lines of cars evacuating towns. I knew, I know countless people that, that had to be evacuated from towns just like you two did. Yeah. And
2: oh. Malakuda as well. Yes, we like, had friends there. Yeah. Well, Jaden and I also had to leave. We were at Falls together, Falls Festival in Lawn, and we had to evacuate that. But what I was going to say I'm about I'm going to cry. Yeah. <laughs> we're still sad about it. And now we're looking to a New Year's with no Falls. It's kind of sad. But um, what I was going to say about Bright is I just remember waking up on New Year's Day and Whitney's dad had the TV on <laughs> in their camping setup. Um, he had the news on and we were watching um, the Chief Commissioner of the New-, New South Wales Fire Service crying and talking about the death of these firefighters and i think that's something i'll never forget and it's a summer all australians will never forget and it's definitely been an underlying anxiety through all we've been through this year kind of like well what's going to happen next summer uh we have a friend who works at the cfa Mm. shout out we've talked about it before yeah (laughs) but she she said it looks like more of a grass fire small season so yes it is time to talk about climate change i think One thing that's interesting just talking about that trauma we've kind of been through as a nation is that eight in ten Australians fear climate change will cause more bushfires and they want a transition away from coal. That's a headline from SBS News, uh, an article written by Evan Young, and it refers to the 2020 climate of the nation snapshot, an annual survey of 2000 voters by Think Tank, the Australia Institute. Climate change has also been floating around the news cycle lately because uh, there was a United Nations climate summit on the weekend, and we have more to say on Australia's involvement in in that a little bit later. More like a lack of involvement.
1: Exactly.
2: Yeah. So the United Nations had recently urged countries to declare states of quote-unquote climate emergency in order to spur action to avoid catastrophic global warming. Kind of like with any big problem, acknowledgement is the first step. So New Zealand passed legislation on the 2nd of December to declare a climate emergency. They committed their public sector to carbon neutrality by 2025. And then this led to a little bit of a spat with Greta Thunberg. She called it out as nothing special and not enough, to which the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, pretty much responded that If it was the sum total of everything they were doing then it would be worthy of criticism but it's not everything that they're doing and she kind of welcomed the criticism and said it's only a good thing that there are people out there continuing to urge ambition and action.
0: I think the way that Jacinda Ardern responded to Greta Thunberg was really something to admire because it shows that she is willing to take on the criticisms and take that in her stride to make sure that New Zealand are striving towards a better and a safer climate future. So it's, it's constructive, it shouldn't be seen as a negative thing, because at the end of the day, implementing all these strategies are just going to benefit everybody.
1: Yeah, it seems to be the case that typically when politicians have their policies criticised, they go straight to defensive and be like, no, this is why it's yeah. the best, this is why it's the best. And I guess for her to actually take her on board what Greta Thunberg was saying and just not completely dismiss it, it shows that she's a much more constructive leader and willing to take on other ideas.
2: I also noticed when I was looking it up, all the headlines were like, Jacinda Ardern and Greta Thunberg's uh, spat over climate change and all these petty little words. Mm -hmm. And then you read the articles and it's not a spat, it's communication publicly by uh, leaders in different ways in a similar space. And I thought they actually, I mean, Greta Thunberg is like three years younger than we are. And she dealt with it like, she's such an adult in this space and Jacinda Ardern took it on board and I thought, and this is something Australia's politicians are guilty of on all sides, is that they do get defensive and they say, well, we do this and we do this, and it's all transactional and measurable, and it should just be an open conversation because this is the future of the planet that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, and the fact that she even, I guess, gave validity to Greta's opinions, given how young she is, she could have just as easily dismissed her as just a child, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, which many world leaders have in the yes. past. I can
0: just imagine like even Australian politicians would give her the time of day because of her age and like that's very ageist. She has a lot of experience. She's been advocating for this for a very long time. She's very knowledgeable. So take what she has to offer on board and help that influence your decision-making.
1: Yeah, and I'd say Greta is like a representation of a lot of young people and what they believe in regards to climate change.
2: And also not to strike somebody down because they criticised you, but to commend kind of that they are willing to criticize you in the first place. I thought, I did reflect that perhaps some of the media outlets, I'm terming it as spat and things like that, could be a little bit of a, a women in a cat fight kind of situation. Mm-hmm. And she dealt with it in a very women supporting women way. I'm not going to strike this younger woman down. I'm going to say, yes, yeah, she has a place to say this and I have a place to respond. So yeah, I thought that was a really
0: admirable conversation that was publicly witnessed. And it's just productive to be like that too because you're not going to get anywhere when you're trying to cut someone down at the knees like we're all in this together type thing and that's the mentality which we have
1: yeah climate change doesn't really have time for you know people fighting over petty issues so it's good that they're just getting on with it
2: and think how much time has been wasted because people are measuring what's politically successful for them and i think almost every government and party in the world is guilty of this And yeah, so absolutely, it's time to get on with it. And on that note, like I said, there was a climate summit last weekend where the UN Secretary General warned that the world is heading for a catastrophic temperature of a rise of more than three degrees by the end of the century unless all countries declare climate emergencies. To which Australia's Resources Minister Keith Pitt He chastised this a bit on ABC Radio on Monday as an inconsequential grand statement. He said, it's about outcomes, it's about a plan, it's about knowing where we're going and what it will cost, and it's about delivery. But he also refused to give his view on a goal towards net zero emissions by 2050. So it didn't sound like he had a plan or a goal or an outcome in mind.
1: No, see, I could understand or respect that view of tokenism If the government had a good track record on emissions reduction. The fact is, emissions have actually gone up over this government. And so them saying that outcomes are more important than token gestures, it just doesn't cut it with me because their outcomes are not good enough.
2: But also, what outcome do you want? He refused to comment on the goal of 2050. If that's not the outcome you want, say it's not. And if it is, say it is rather
0: than avoiding the question. Do Do you you want an outcome or not? It's a lot of dodging around what they're going to do. And that's just confusing for everybody. And we're really one of the only developed nations that aren't jumping on board with developing policies that can be implemented and seen through. So we're really trailing the pack here. And Greta
2: Thunberg is right in that countries are declaring it and then perhaps not following through as well as they should, but we haven't even declared it an emergency. We don't give it... What was it? It was mentioned once in the um, federal 2020 budget in the same
0: sentence as coal?
1: I believe so. Yeah. Or
0: gas? They try and frame it. It's marketing and advertising to make it seem yeah. like we're doing something yeah. but they're not following through. Yeah. So we're not meeting our requirements, no. we're not meeting all the things that we actually need to no. to hold ourselves to international standards.
1: And um, so yeah. for those who don't quite know what's going on and essentially what the world is trying to move towards, many countries around the world are moving towards a goal of net zero by 2050. Australia's Australian the current Australian goal is net zero within the second half of the century so that could be anywhere between 2050 or 2099 and quite frankly that's just not acceptable that's the
2: end of our lifetime that
1: is the end of our lifetime very morbid thanks Ari.
2: (laughs) we're old we're on the track to death. it's fine Um, anyway sorry my cynicism aside
1: i think it's just also important to notice that while the Australian government hasn't committed to net zero by 2050, every state and territory in Australia has committed to net zero by 2050. So in a sense, Australia is already on track If in that sense. Um, and in regards to the climate emergency declaration, many local councils seem to be taking that issue on board and declaring a climate emergency.
0: So it's really a bottom up effort.
1: Unfortunately, and you'd think yeah. ideally the leaders from the top should be working yeah. down and. Leading yeah. well,
0: climate
2: as a court started from the bottom up. It started as grassroots activism in Australia. It started, you know, Bob Brown, leader of the Greens or founder of the Greens. That started with um, the famous
1: Tasmanian dams case. <laughs> We've yeah.
2: all done it in some form of yes. a subject. Have you done it? Too, yeah, in my first year law subject.
1: Amazing yeah. principles oh, of business. That makes yeah. me so happy. <laughs>
2: Oh, I was just going to ask, Jaden, can you explain what net zero emissions means?
1: Yeah, so net zero, it's not necessarily no emissions, meaning no pollution whatsoever, but it just means that the pollution that we do put out, it's being offset, whether that be by modern technology like carbon capture and storage, or just simply planting trees. So we just need to make sure that um, whatever's going out into the atmosphere is being taken in.
0: Mm. So one main thing we need to keep in mind is climate change just doesn't impact the environment or our surroundings. So yes, we have bushfires, cyclones and extreme weather events, but it's also impacting us in a lot more ways than you may think. Over the last 20 years, I think we've really gained a better and deeper understanding of how these environmental volatilities impact our society. So whether that be through the economy, through agriculture, all different parts of our livelihoods. In a previous episode, we talked about the idea of externalities, which are when actions that we do in undertaking production or distribution of products causes a wider implications for society. So whether they be positive or negative, but in this case, climate change is a negative externality. So all of the emissions and all of the stuff that's created as an impact of main sources of production impact society in ways that aren't intended to occur, but they still do. In a speech given by Nicholas Stern in 2008, He describes greenhouse gas emissions to be an externality in four ways that we've never seen before. These are, it is global in its origins and impacts. So lending a hand to globalization and the significant international development across the world. Some effects are extremely long-term and governed by flow stock processes, which is inventory management. So the more that we produce and the more that we have to replenish our stocks in businesses, the more these effects are going to occur. Number three is there's uncertainty in the steps of the scientific chain. And number four, the effects are large and potentially irreversible, which speaks for itself. So this main issue with externalities is that it can be difficult to hold those who created the loss accountable and consequently make them pay for the impact. So if we think back to the carbon tax, there was so much pushback for this, both within the government and the opposition and the industry, because people didn't want to be held accountable because they didn't want to endure the additional costs despite what their actions were causing. I also think it caused a lot of division just
2: in the general public because they didn't want to be held accountable for what their consumerism was causing as well. So it was really widespread and in multiple ways.
1: Yeah, I think I could talk heaps about this carbon tax because I was really, really passionate about it. <laughs> at but 12 I think years old. <laughs> I literally was. I really was. I still remember some of the discussions I used to have. But I think a lot of the carbon tax came down to the way the liberal opposition at the time sold it. It was sold as like like it would be the end all to your daily budget. But in reality, it was a tax on the top 100 biggest polluters and Those at the bottom of the the income spectrum actually got compensated for it through their settling payments. So look, it didn't work. It didn't last in the end, but I guess there's there's not much of a desire to be held accountable for polluting the earth, which is strange because I feel like many people would agree that littering should, you know, result in a fine, but apparently not releasing harmful gases into the atmosphere.
0: It's really interesting dynamic because you have this opposition who was so passionate about not passing this legislation because it was not in the best interest of the voters who vote for them. So they were looking after their voter base, but at the expense of that, you're ensuring that all of this harm is done to the environment. So really, you still are hurting yourself. And the redistributive effects of the tax, so people that were going to be on Centrelink were going to get paid more, that's a positive thing to happen. And so we should be encouraging that type of behavior, but we haven't. So it's really like a double effect of what is happening to the wider part of our economy and our livelihoods.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone looks over the last 20 years of Australian emissions, you see the exact period where the carbon tax was in place and you see emissions going down. Mm-hmm. And in 2014, when the tax was repealed, you see emissions go straight back up. So we knew the tax worked and... but. Unfortunately, it didn't last. And I think that might be an interesting thing to share on our Instagram page because it's such a stark contrast between when the tax was in and was not in place.
2: Just imagine where we'd be now. So the carbon tax came into place when we were 12 years old, now we're 21. Imagine where our country would be if that had stayed in place the entire time.
0: And it comes down, like I was saying before, it does come down to politics. The over-politicization of something in the media And so it gets riled up, people talk about it, it just like blows itself up and so it gets to a point where it implodes and that's all we saw.
1: It's really strange and I think it might be more of an Australian slash American issue because I look over to the UK right now where there is a conservative government with Boris Johnson and they are going beyond what is technically required of them in regards to addressing climate change. Boris Johnson was on the phone to Scott Morrison recently urging him to do more on climate change. They've committed to net zero by 2050. They've committed to reducing their greenhouse gases by 63% by 2030. They are some really bold plans. They're even banning the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles in the next 10 years. That's phenomenal. And that's a conservative government. So it does show that there's more politics as opposed to good policy. And it's a bit, bit of a shame.
0: So it's not a left and a right issue. No, it's not. Because across the board...
1: Protecting the planet should not be a left or right issue. Yeah, absolutely
0: not. And both
2: sides of the spectrum have fallen short at different times.
1: I would much more... I'd be much more open to a discussion in regards to how to address climate change as opposed to the debate that we seem to have... Yeah, as opposed to the debate that we have here in Australia, which is whether we should address climate change.
0: Which clearly it does. Like We've just come out of the worst fire season that we've ever seen before. And we just, which we just discussed, plus everything else that happens. We're a nation built on agriculture and industries that relate to all of that. So why aren't we doing more about it? So moving on from our discussion then, we can also break this economics of climate change into three more categories, um, which dictate this whole kind of area of study. So the first one, we have direct monetary consequences of more extreme weather events. The second one, failure to recognize the economic consequences of climate change and maintaining appropriate responses related to capital investment in Australian industries. So this basically relates to our reliance on foreign capital and borrowings. So we are a net lender. We tend to borrow money to make sure our economy continues to grow. And because of this, we may see a withdrawal of capital, which would be detrimental to our industry and related asset values. So in the first episode, we talked about this concept of a sudden stop. So where you reach a certain level of debt that you've taken on or certain economic or environmental circumstances, the people that lend money to you might just withdraw that and then you're kind of left in the lurch. So this may happen if our, if our lenders don't believe that we are maintaining our targets or whatnot. So they do have the ability to just withdraw whenever they please. Also under this bracket, It would allow us to stay in line with foreign nations who have committed to applying climate risk assessments to their decision-making. So right now, we clearly don't make any kind of formal acknowledgement, or we don't do that enough. So that's why we're kind of seeing that we're in these situations where maybe we're building a new gas plant. Well, is that really appropriate, given that we should be moving to renewable technologies? So this ongoing impact assessment isn't continuing to happen. And the third one, moving to a less carbon intensive industry and energy sources within Australia. This is certainly a long-term change because we cannot just switch to new energy sources overnight. So it will require governmental support and a commitment to the change occurring. As we just mentioned before, in the budget that was released earlier this year, the government did label solar and wind energy technologies to be mature and no longer requiring government support. Uh, Because these are generally the most accessible type of renewable energy sources, They are established in society and also, therefore, relatively cheaper to households and businesses to access. So this may make it really difficult if we aren't promoting and subsidising these energy sources. We may see the uptake continues or will start to fall off. So we need to ensure that people are incentivised to stop relying on carbon producing sources of energy like coal, which we do know is problematic.
1: It's really strange. I know we talked about this in an earlier episode, but the fact that wind and solar are classified as mature and so don't deserve government support, but gas is getting government support and that's probably a lot more mature than wind and solar.
0: Yeah. And even coal, like all the subsidies they give to businesses there, it's it's a bit of a cop-out. And I think that just kind of shows a little bit where the government is at in terms of climate policy and our environmental policy. And that's the kind of almost culture that we need to change, that we need to start shifting what we can produce and supply to the world too, because other nations are changing. So we have to keep in line with that. And we are a nation built off digging stuff out of the ground. Mm. So if we no, no longer have demand for it, well, then what are we going to do?
1: Yeah, it's a bit of a pickle. And it's quite strange as well, because in regards to like the whole economics of it, these industries are kind of only being continued because of the significant government support that they're getting. I guarantee that if the government pulled out all of their subsidies for the fossil fuel industry, I can't imagine it lasting too much longer.
0: I think the main thing to consider at the end of the day is that we're a country that are a direct beneficiary of just digging stuff out of the ground and relying on that in our main export markets. So for some context, um, our three main export markets are iron ore, which is 23.5% of the market gold and other precious metals, 6.3% of the market, and mineral fuels, including oil, which is 34.6% of the market. So that's a massive part of what we send overseas and what people demand and also buy from us. So I do get the hesitation in the government not wanting to change our climate policy because that will impact these massive industries that essentially drive how we function economically, but also people overseas don't demand as much going forward because of all of their changes too so we need to come up with this kind of like middle ground where we're not sacrificing what we do have but also we are looking forward to ensuring that we are protected and once people start stop taking all of our resources and stop purchasing them we're not left in this kind of situation where we don't have any export markets left.
1: I was just about to say even like the staunchest climate denier would understand where the the world's moving in regards to the economy and where the demand for energy is going. And so for a government now in 2020, looking forward to 2050, we have such an opportunity to prepare the workforce, retrain them, reskill them for the future and enable them a better future. Because if tomorrow um, China say, well, no more coal, that's a lot of jobs gone. And just a side note, that did sort of happen this week. It is happening. It is happening right now. And so it's a big workforce that we're going to be leaving in the dark and the government's not really looking out for them. So in a sense, if the government really cared about these co-workers, they would be trying their best to reskill them for the future.
2: This is such an art student thing to say, but I think also beyond economics, the Australian identity is so intimately tied into this, as Whitney says so eloquently, digging stuff out of the ground, like idea. It's really what I think... Australians rely on to distinguish us from England as a colony, which I have problems with to begin with. But I think, yeah, the Australian identity, we're an outpost of Britain, but we're in this country and it's hot and it's rough and we work really hard. We are a working class people. And obviously this is an antiquated identity, but it's really at the heart of Australians. And so I think it's just kind of like we get really stuck in this old idea and what our identity should be. And we're resisting all this opportunity for innovation. We don't have to rely on it as much as that picture is painted to us. I think the idea that people perceive is if you take coal away, Australia has nothing. Well, that's not true. Australia has so many great minds and entrepreneurs and all this innovation around clean energy sources and renewables, and we just don't seize that opportunity because it's so embedded, yes, in our economy, But also in our identity, that has the potential to hold us back just as much.
0: Yeah, I have two things off that. The first one with the identity, like that's what got us through the GFC. The only reason we didn't hit a recession was that there were these emerging markets internationally that were demanding so much stuff. That's what kept us afloat because we were exporting so much and it was just record breaking levels Mm. and the second one too is we have the space and we do have these developing technologies like maybe we move to trying to figure out how we can store energy in batteries for example yeah can you export that like looking at different types of export markets yeah is like is all this stuff feasible and that's where I think we need to start shifting because now is the time you don't want to leave it to are five years out and you go what are we going to do with our workforce
1: Absolutely. In regards to what I was talking about, like identity and coal being or mining being such an Australian identity, I think that's seen really strongly in one of the government senators of Matt Canavan. Mm-hmm. Now, Matt Canavan is probably one of the strongest advocates for coal up in Queensland. He's from the Nationals party. And you frequently see, I think he even recently changed his Facebook profile to him wearing high-vis at a coal mine, all dusty and dirty. But in reality, he's a politician. And before he was a politician, he was a staffer for Senator Barnaby Joyce. And then before that, he was an economist at the Productivity Commission. So this is a man who's never worked at a coal mine in his life. However, as a politician, puts on the cold gear the high vis yeah. just to put across this image of what aria was talking about in regards to the Australian identity and it is it's just so laughable but it, his product as a politician is selling
2: it's toxic off the back of what we were saying about finding new export markets and things like that the reality is that the, those ideas and those answers to those dilemmas are in Australia but they're in People who are not the government, they're in people who aren't the power, they're in grassroots activism and entrepreneurs, like I was saying. And it's about actually getting the government to back those people, those Australians who can create Australia's new identity. We can be an innovative country. We don't have to stick to this outpost of the West hard workers, I think. It's just... I think the whole
1: hard working part is also a bit of um, capitalism coming into it. it, You must be a hard worker to be a good person, but... You could also just be a smart worker.
2: But I think also coming from, and somehow I've made this about colonization. Everything. Everything everything is about
1: about colonization. As an art student especially. (laughs) Yes.
2: I think the thing is that whether or not people are in support of a republic people in general in Australia are keen on being distinguishable from England and I think that comes with we've earned what we've got England because of the monarchy there's kind of this idea that everything is served to you on a silver platter and that's not true because the monarchy is such a small portion of England like minuscule but we don't have that in Australia the prime minister is on merit and even though it doesn't check out because we still have the head of state which is the monarchy Australia is like, we are different to Britain because we work hard. We work under this hot sun, even though we're in Melbourne, we're so, like, protected. sheltered. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing is, it, like what you're saying with Matt Canavan, it doesn't represent reality. It's not really the all-Australian experience, but it's certainly what holds us back from moving forward. So moving on quite abruptly... Something completely different, but back to a favorite topic of 99 Talks. I'd say climate change and the American election are our two big driving forces of this podcast. Uh, Yeah, certainly in 2020. There's a lot of
1: passion behind those two topics.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So it's a little bit less explicitly involved in the election, I guess, but it's about who's coming into office, and I want to talk about Dr. Biden. That is Dr. Jill Biden, the wife of... The man who happens to be president-elect. So, Joe Biden's wife, Jill Biden, is a very educated woman in her own right. She does have a doctorate degree, hence the title doctor. She also has two masters and a bachelor degree. So, clearly, she is... Highly a, educated. Yeah, yeah. And has absolutely nothing to do with who her, who her husband is. So, anyway, last week, uh, Joseph Epstein published a Wall Street Journal column castigating Dr. Jill Biden for using the doctor title that she did acquire with her doctorate degree in educational leadership, writing, Madam First Lady, Mrs. Biden, Jill, kiddo. Any chance you might drop the doctor before your name? Dr. Jill Biden sounds and feels fraudulent, not to say a touch comic. Oh, my blood boils at the kiddo.
0: That is so
1: patronising. Absolutely awful.
0: Who is Mr. Epstein to be saying this? And like just brushing off all the achievements, she is not her husband, she's her own person in her own right, so respect her for what she has achieved. The way
2: he strips her back, so he goes, um, Madam First Lady, which is clearly as high as she, he thinks she can get, he doesn't bother with the doctor, Madam First Lady, down to Mrs Biden, down to Jill, down to kiddo. The kiddo, he yeah, strips the back dreadful. everything, oh... Yeah, it absolutely makes me sick, to be quite frank. I'm happy to be explicit with how I feel about that. So he mocked the research that she'd done on student retention rates in community college. He basically said her degree was equivalent to an honorary doctorate and urged her to instead focus on supporting her husband during his time in the White House.
1: Supporting her Her husband.
2: husband. Babe, sit back. Mm. drop, Drop your career. Drop everything you've earned and just... Just validate this man. Decorate the house.
1: Place. I
0: think this really plays into, though, I think she's the first first lady of the United States or elect at this stage, whatever her title is, that will still be working while she is living yeah. in the White House. So I, it doesn't sit well with people because it's not the norm. Yes. And she's pushing the boundary. And, like, that's what we need. This is the change that you don't have to drop everything for your husband. You can continue doing what you yeah, want to do. It's very
1: this very Jacinta Ardern having a baby vibes about this whole situation. Yeah. It's really, really unsettling. But
0: she can't get the respect for that because that is 100% her decision and her decision only to make. And this is just another episode of Women Can't Win because if
2: she was... Say she didn't have these accolades and she just was going to try to be an impactful first lady who just did her best for the country then she'd be called a trophy wife she'd be said it things would be said about her that she's only in this position because of her
0: husband that
1: exact terminology was used on melania trump it's awful
0: yeah and if we flip it if there was a female president her husband would likely be expected to work
1: if bill clinton had stayed home etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: Yeah. so if bill clinton had
2: become the first gentleman of the united states he wouldn't. They wouldn't ask him to drop because former presidents get called president, so they wouldn't ask him to drop his former presidential title. No, no. The double standard. I'm it just literally keeps scratching my head. In no. I'm just perplexed.
1: It's actually quite interesting because the title doctor it was actually originated from gaining an, a doctorate in regards to like um, your studies and education, whereas like in regards to what most people would regard to a doctor in regards to the medical sense, it was actually actually a an honorary title given to them because of the significance of their degree.
2: It's very uh, Ross from Friends vibes. I'm a doctor, (laughs) but not a doctor.
1: Absolutely.
2: But I just kind of think there's two words that I want to pick apart in what Joseph Epstein has written here. Why is it fraudulent that she be referred to as doctor? She has earned it. She has done the same degree that any man can or would do and does do. So why is it fraudulent that she be called that.
1: So from what I understood in the whole situation, the fraudulent aspect came from the whole COVID-19 situation and the fact that at the moment doctors and nurses etc they're held really highly among the community and so the term doctor might might be fraudulent. I don't really, it's not medically trained no, though, no, so it's it not ridiculous. It doesn't settle well with me, but that's the only. And what do you there. mean
2: held highly in the community? Donald Trump doesn't listen to the scientists and doctors. No, so it's all irrelevant anyway. Yep. You can you can tell when I get passionate about <laughs> these things. My other <laughs> now thing that I'm, we're in
1: person, I can see Ari's yeah. <laughs> passion as well.
2: <gasps> yeah, I'm like making, I'm like locking eyes the with Jade. <laughs> <laughs> and my other thing is, why is it comical? What is funny about this woman being called doctor? I just want Joseph Epstein
0: come to me, Arie Parker in Melbourne. Tell me. Hit her up on Twitter. Why Tira. is it comical? <laughs> she's why? pushing a boundary that nobody has before, and obviously to him that that's not something that he can accept. And oh, yeah. But like that that shouldn't be a thing. We shouldn't be having this conversation. It's not a comical situation. Like that's her right. That she's earned that. So go let her live that and be what she's achieved. Yeah. And I'm not a doctor, but I have two diagnoses
2: for Mr. (laughs) Epstein. I don't actually know where his title is. Hope it's not doctor. Firstly, I diagnose him with tall poppy syndrome, which is the cultural phenomenon, which is actually kind of more attributed to Australia and New Zealand. But it's mocking people who think highly of themselves or cutting down the tall poppy. And it's kind of seen as this form of promoting modesty and egalitarianism. So whatever you whatever position you hold in society, you are equal to everybody else. And sure, but the thing about tall poppy syndrome is that it is kind of broken down to be that it's a jealousy thing. It's cutting it's when people rise higher than you needing to cut them down.
0: It's counterproductive because how can you continue to grow and develop as a society if those around you can't aspire to achieve what they want to achieve?
1: Yeah, it's just the whole typical people being uncomfortable about women essentially mm. breaking the mould of what society thinks they should be doing.
0: But we should be making them uncomfortable because otherwise we're going to end up with this deeply rooted situation where we don't we don't have a space in society and we're not welcome because we're not given the time and the place to rightly take a seat at the table. Yeah, yeah. well,
1: people like Epstein should be uncomfortable because it's the women for the last... Thousands of years that have been the ones that have been uncomfortable. So the tables are just turning, and he's clearly a bit yes. uncomfortable about. If you're it.
2: uncomfortable with that, that's your own problem. But also, it's good because discomfort is where growth comes from. Anyway, my other thing to kind of diagnose him with is basically the male American ego, and I mean, I don't mean to generalize, but I just want to kind of backtrack to that ongoing conversation that we're having on this podcast about masculinity and kind of i think there's this yeah there's this ego and particularly in americans when it comes to the presidency like they hold it on such a pedestal that if anything threatens it then they kind of come out to bite. but it's what they see it as and what they see it being threatened by because it's only ever the presidency has only ever been a man so when strong women rise to stand next to the presidency i feel like and this is my speculation and my analysis. I'd love to hear what my dad has to say about it. but I just And I'd love to hear what anybody has to say about it. But I just feel like it's kind of this, yeah, this intimidation that somebody who is not subservient can stand next to the President of the United States. And she's not just there to support him in his role and validate him and back him up. But she will be doing her own thing in her own right while he's in the White House.
0: Yeah, it doesn't settle well that she's not going to be a figurehead. But I did watch mm. this video that had, it was a reflection of um, Obama's time in the office. And it was a—it was Michelle and Jill in the video. And Michelle was praising Jill for when they would go places. She would sit on the plane and she would mark stuff. Yeah. Like it she would grade, still continue yeah. to do her job. So if she could do it then, as when, um
1: second lady
0: yeah well why can't she do it when she's first lady there's no difference yeah absolutely
2: and on that michelle obama did write this massive instagram post which was great there was a lot of backlash so i'll start with kind of yeah so in looking at the public discourse around it i'll kind of start with michelle obama she wrote a lot on instagram but the final paragraph that really resonated with me was she said And right now, we're all seeing what also happens to so many professional women, whether their titles are doctor, Ms., Mrs., or even first lady. All too often, our accomplishments are met with skepticism, even derision. We're doubted by those who choose the weakness of ridicule over the strength of respect. And yet, somehow, their words can stick. After decades of work, we're forced to prove ourselves all over again. And this kind of ties into imposter syndrome, which is something that I think a lot of a lot of people experience, but I know through talking with um, my female friends as we kind of grow in our careers or we get into certain degrees and things like that, imposter syndrome is something that is spoken of between women a lot. Particularly in the professional services, I think you just can never prove yourself enough. And sometimes if you prove yourself enough, then there comes to be consequences because you're too autonomous or you're too outspoken or your personality is too big. That is exactly what we're seeing here and it is what Michelle Obama has articulated here.
0: Yeah, I literally experienced that with an email signature this week. So yeah. it's in the littlest of things that it pops its head up. I always, (laughs) even just in school, when you'd get like a
2: student leadership role, you'd be like, well, I don't deserve this. And then it and I think that's a general experience. But then particularly, I find you can look at female politicians and they're just held to different standards. And it's a conversation we've had before. Some other backlash, which I thought it would be good to just kind of look at is that the president elect. So Joe Biden's communications director, which also the Biden-Harris team have the most diverse. Uh, it's fantastic yeah like it's teams really behind them their communications team etc you can look at kamala harris's instagram i think joe biden's as well mm. and they have like team photos of everyone and it's super diverse and there's lots of women which is great um so yeah joe biden's communications director kate beddingfield tweeted what patronizing sexist elitist drivel about epstein's column The daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. tweeted in support of Jill Biden. She reminded people that her father used the title doctor despite not being a medical doctor. And she added, and his work benefited humanity greatly, yours does too. And that goes back to what Jaden was saying about perhaps it's about the medical thing behind it. Is just because it's not medical doesn't mean it doesn't benefit humanity greatly. And you can see that in COVID and leadership is that we've got all this science and all this medical research but it doesn't matter if the person at the top doesn't also back that up so it's benefiting humanity is not limited to um, medicine also jill biden herself replied in a tweet on sunday saying together we will build a world where the accomplishments of our daughters will be celebrated rather than diminished
0: wraps us up for another week of 99 talks so thank you so much for joining us and we really appreciate your support
1: wonderful thank you guys and of course as always to support us hit us up on instagram like comment all of that send us some messages about your experiences in the world of politics especially at the moment where we're wanting to talk about specific gender issues that have come up in your life and so we'd love to hear your thoughts we've already had some messages already so we're very excited to discuss that our Instagram is 99talks.pod, so please hit us up there.
2: Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank Bye. You guys. See, ya. See ya.